Amen. Amen. Thanks, Micah and team. Awesome to sing about our great God, his uh, holiness, his greatness, his love in Christ. Um, Our kids can head back to be with the team downstairs in the club at Transformation Station. And I'd love to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's indestructible word to the gospel of John. We'll start in chapter five this morning. Well, I hope that everyone had a Merry Christmas. Uh, For those of you who are new around here, my name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, It's good to see not only uh, all all of you that I've been seeing, but even, you know, the holidays. Sometimes we get some of our, you know, uh, people that have kind of departed from Boston, but can also kind of come back in for the holidays. It's it's awesome to reconnect uh, with some of you uh, here this morning. And, And I hope that you feel somewhat refreshed from the holidays. I know the holidays can be a busy time and kind of going from here to there and a lot going on, uh, but at the same time, hopefully it's been a time where you've been able to kind of step back and uh, relax a little bit, become uh, refreshed, and, uh, and just grateful for uh, who God is and what he's doing in our lives. And that was the experience for Marsha and I. We were able to, to go see our family in, in Georgia and uh, spend some good time uh, there with family, relaxing, got a little extra reading in as well as quality family time, and it was really good. And, and now, now back uh, to plunge into a new year, 2016. And I hope you're, you're, you're ready uh, for what God has in store, and I hope you're expectant as to what God wants to do in your life uh, individually, but also uh, in our lives collectively as a church family, and that is who we are because of, because of who God is. Uh, we, are, we are one together uh, family in Him. Um, well, as we, as we dive in and think about making the most of 2016, uh, I believe this story here today uh, will help us pre- prepare to really make the most of this brand new year. Um, I, my, my assumption, and I suppose this is a safe assumption, is that no one is like, hey, it's, it's January 1st, we turn the calendar, and you know, this is an opportunity for me to set on kind of this lousy quest of mediocrity, right? I mean, like no one's kind of got that ambition, uh, hopefully in their heart uh, this morning. Uh, but, But hopefully all of us are saying, man, we can't wait to see what God wants to do in us and through us in this new year. And so hopefully we have a sense of expectation and excitement, uh, even amidst maybe some of the challenges that are going on in our lives today. And so as we we jump into John chapter 5, what we're going to find is that Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and he is going to heal a man. Uh, This isn't just like a simple healing, okay? Not that any healing is simple, um, but this man had been lame for 38 years, But what we're going to find is is not only does Jesus perform this sign, which again is revealing who he is, revealing his glory to everyone around him, but he's also going to create a controversy because he does this on a day when other people don't think he should be doing uh, these kind of things. But not only that, not only is there this, this Sabbath controversy, as we'll see, but there becomes this identity controversy over who Christ is. And so uh, read with me uh, as I read for us verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 5. This is what the gospel writer John says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what we have going on here is Jesus entering Jerusalem like any pious Jew would have for another festival. Now, um, the text doesn't tell us which festival it was. If it was the festival of the Passover, probably not. Perhaps it was the festival of the tabernacles or booze where the uh, Israelites would celebrate their exodus out of slavery in Egypt as they traveled in tents and lived in tents as they were on their way to the promised land. We can't be for sure which festival it was, but we can know that this was a time of great celebration for the people of Israel. At the same time, just because there was celebration and joy in the city, life did not stop there for the people, which also meant suffering did not stop either. And perhaps you can identify with this even as we move into the new year. Uh, just because the, 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 the year has changed from 15 to 16, um, life may not feel all that different. In fact, you may not be very pleased with your life and the way that it feels today. Well, there's hope for us because of Christ and who he is. This is what we see in verses 2 and 3. It says that, that there was this, this pool um, by the sheep gate that in Aramaic was called Bethesda. It, it, the, the word Bethesda means house of mercy. 
And it was an appropriate term for this pool to be called because the the people who were there were certainly looking for some mercy. They were people who had been riddled by disease and, and illness and suffering. So John says that there were, there were people who were, who were blind and lame and, and paralyzed there. And they were just hoping against hope that they could receive a miraculous cure. You see, there was this belief that, that the water that was there uh, when, when it was apparently stirred up. Now, we don't know exactly how the water was stirred up. Perhaps it was some kind of natural spring that was there that caused the water to bubble. Perhaps there was some kind of supernatural uh, phenomenon going on there. Uh, we can't know for sure, but there was the belief that whenever the waters were stirred, the first invalid who would make their way to the pool could be healed. So at the sound of water, you can imagine this rush to get into the pool. Now, some of you who are reading closely might have noticed that we went from verse 3 to verse 5, and verse 4 is omitted in John chapter 5. Now, why is that? Well, um, as as John uh, Chastain, I believe he's preaching John chapter 8, we will see this at the beginning of John chapter 8, where um, there there are a couple few instances in, in in the Gospel of John, where there seems to be uh, what is known, they're, they're called textual variants, okay? In other words, the, the ancient manuscripts that were copied from the original manuscript, at times they vary one from another, and most of the time that's a simple mistake. You know, scribes uh, wrote the scriptures over and over and over again. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't have, you know, um, this technology that we enjoy today. So they actually hand-wrote all of the scriptures, uh, these scribes would do that. Well, sometimes they would make little errors along the way. And at other times, it seems that perhaps to kind of add potential explanation, they would insert a a line that that maybe originally started in a margin that's conceivable that then kind of made its way into the text. So so as we read from verse 7, look at what it says. It says, No one can put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So what on earth does that mean? This is why verse 4 would would refer to an angel that would come and stir the water. It's an ancient explanation for what is going on there at the pool. So whatever the case, um, it is to this scene that Jesus arrives and he spots a man who had been lying there for 38 years. Now, what I love about Jesus, think about this. Sometimes when you read the scriptures, we miss the obvious, right? Jesus goes to Bethesda. He doesn't take a detour around the pool. He doesn't try to avoid the the blind and the crippled and, and the lame. He goes right to the pool and he spots a man because of his supernatural knowledge. He knows that this man had been lying there for a very long time. And so he asks him a curious question. Sir, do you wish to be healed? Isn't that a curious question? I mean, is it? Isn't, doesn't it demand an obvious answer? Of course he wants to be healed. Who, who is sick that does not want to be healed? And so the, the, the man responds and he says, I have no one to help me to get to the water. And he does not know that he is, he is lying before 
the one who spoke the world into existence and who sustains it by the word of his power. He has no idea that Jesus has the power to heal him. And yet, in the, in the space in which we can speak one sentence, Jesus brings healing to this man who had been lame for 38 years. I just try to imagine what it must have been like for him to begin to feel sensation in his legs and then to feel strength to the point where he could get up and then move, perhaps for the first time ever. It must have been an unbelievable moment for this man. And it must have brought great joy to those around I mean, can you imagine if, if someone at Mass General Hospital uh, had been lying there sick in a hospital room for 38 years and then suddenly they were miraculously healed? Would, would not every floor of the hospital erupt with joy because this person experienced this kind of healing? I mean, it was, it was that radical what Jesus does for this man. And that is why we find verses 9 and 10 to be so jolting as we read this passage. And why is that? It's because not everyone was celebrating the fact that this man had been healed. You have these leaders of the people. They were the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of that day who, who uh, see him walking and instead of rejoicing with him, uh, they say, you know, healed man, um, why, are you, why are you walking around taking up your, your mat and, 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 and doing this on the Sabbath? Certainly the Sabbath was a day that was, was for, for worship and rest in ancient Israel. But um, what these, these religious leaders would do is they would add laws and, 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 and works that were found nowhere in the Old Testament. One scholar said, said this, they, they developed hundreds of minutely detailed and burdensome rules about what kind of work was prohibited, including a code that forbade carrying an object from one domain to another. And so you see, they, they tried to add rules, one on top of the, of the other, so that they could kind of, um, by their own self-righteous effort, they could become more acceptable and pleasing to God. We call this legalism today. Performing our way to God's acceptance. And, and this, for this reason, because these religious leaders were adding rules and laws to God's standard, this is why Jesus continually butted heads with the religious leaders. We see this in Luke um, chapter uh, 5. Where, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 13, uh, where, where um, a synagogue ruler chastises the people after Jesus healed a woman who had been disabled for 18 years. Listen to what it says. There are six days, this is what he proclaims, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. I mean, how ridiculous, right? You, you, can't be, you can be healed on six days, 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But when it comes to Saturday, the the Jewish Sabbath, um, you can't be healed on those days. Come another day if you want something unbelievable to happen to you. And so Jesus cannot stand this hypocrisy. Look at, look at what he says. He says, the Lord answered them, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? You take care of your animals. <laughs> and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. You see, Jesus said it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And because I am in charge of all things and have authority over all things, I am even Lord of the Sabbath. I call the shots every day of the week. And if I want to do good, and if you want to do good, by all means, you should do good on the Sabbath. And so this controversy was stirred up between the religious leaders and Jesus. It says in verse 16 that they started persecuting Jesus even more. And so Jesus, in response to their oppression and persecution, he gives a statement to them that is as radical as it comes. Look at verse 17 again. He says what? He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. What Jesus does is he escalates one controversy and creates another controversy. You see, the the religious leaders to whom he was speaking, they would certainly agree that God was always at work. I mean, just think about the logic of it all. If God created the world and he is the sustainer of the world, then the only reason that the earth continues to spin each day around the sun is because God keeps this world in motion. So God isn't like taking a day off on, on Saturday for the world to, to stop and for, for things not to be sustained by his gracious power. And so the, the religious leader was certainly agreed, yes, yes, God is always at work. But for Jesus to say, my father raised the stakes. You see, um, the Jews would not call God in such intimate terms, my father. So, so Jesus, number one, is, is claiming to have this special divine relationship with God. But number two, he is also claiming the privilege of always being at work like God is on the Sabbath. He is claiming that privilege also for himself. And, and the Jews could read the implications of this like a book. Look at verse 18. They, they see what Jesus is saying here when it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so uh, Pastor John Chastain is going to continue this dialogue that is sparked by these uh, events uh, next week as we look at the, 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 the dialogue between Jesus and his authority and the religious leaders as chapter 5 continues. But what I want to do today is I want us to focus in on verse 17. This climactic statement where Jesus says, God, the Father, is always working, and I, too, am at work. And I want us to consider who God is and who God has made us to be. And the invitation for us today is this, to engage in great work. 
in 2016 by reflecting the working God. All right? Engage in great work in 2016 by reflecting the working God. Just two encouragements to kind of unpack this, this, this thought for us today, okay? Number one, um, we should work as the, those who are made in the image of God. When Jesus says, my father is always working, this is a huge truth claim. God is the working God. The very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says as much. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so let, me just kind of, let me just kind of paint a picture here. All right, that's a big job. All right? That's... That's like, that's not a small kind of like, I can just kind of do that with my sleep, right? Like God made the world. That took some work. God is the working God. But we, as we continue to read chapter one, we see that we are made in his image. Listen to what verse 27 says. So God created man, what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So what, so what does this mean? As those who are made in the image of God... God, the working God, we reflect him by also engaging in work. So this means whatever our hand finds to do, no matter what kind of work we engage in, whether it's your, your kind of vocational job or some other way you're serving a neighbor, your family, your friends, okay, everything that we do that is considered work is actually an opportunity, okay, and this is why there's just endless opportunities to glorify God. It is a way that we can point to the existence and the greatness of God. And consider this. I love this, okay? Even for those people who say, you know what, there is no God. I don't believe in God. I don't care what you have to say about this working God. I would just say every time they show up to work, they are actually pointing to the existence of God, whether they want to or not. Why is that? Because, because we are made in God's image to work. I mean, this is why, by the way, um, when people are out of work for a long time, when they're unemployed for a long time, or when they're disabled and can't work um, or serve in some kind of practical ways, a lot of times those people become discouraged and dis depressed. Now, why is that? It's because we were not made to sit on our hands. We were made to serve and to work. Even for those of you who are at the age of retirement, perhaps, I'm sure that you're still finding ways to be active and serve and, and work, even if it's not in your traditional vocational sense. Why is that? It's because we were made to work. But as you know, our work can be riddled by frustration. And why is that? Well, it's because we live in an imperfect world. What are some ways that we see this creep up in our work? I'm sure you can kind of identify with this as, as you go about your tasks in your workplace, okay? Number one, work can become a drudgery. What I mean by that is this, that the, the, the job that we once loved, we don't enjoy so much. Uh, it becomes a joyless duty. We, we do things because we have to do them. Work becomes a drudgery. Number two, work is tainted by other people. 
injustice abounds in the workplace. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like things aren't perfect because you work with imperfect people. So you have things like a favoritism in the workplace. Anybody ever experienced that? Been on the wrong end of that one? Um, what about uh, nepotism? You know, like people get, you know, kind of promoted or preferential treatment because of their relationship to the superior. Um, you have lazyism. You have work only when the boss is lookingism, right? Um, you have cut, cut the cornerism. Um, it's just all of these ways that, the, the, that work shows how. How, how fallen our world is because other people around us are fallen. And then also, uh, work is frustrating and feels often meaningless. And that is because, I mean, we, we, we can't uh, live up to our own standards that we set for ourselves, oftentimes much less those that maybe our, our supervisor, boss, has set up for us. And so it becomes, becomes this stressful kind of anxious place because the task list that we kind of start the day with or start the week with, it just never seems like it can get so work is frustrating because we live in an imperfect world, but, but work is also frustrating. I know you don't want to hear this, but, but work is also frustrating because we are imperfect. You have the imperfect world and you have the imperfect us. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, so work can become selfish. We, we do what we do for our sake. We're not, we're not doing what we do because we love God or we love those around us. We're doing what we do because, because we love ourselves. Work becomes not a mechanism to worship, but work becomes a means to an end. And if, and if money isn't the means to an end, if money isn't the primary motivator, which, by the way, money should never be the primary motivator for our work. Let's just set things straight real quick, okay? Um, if it's not money, then if it's all, often just kind of our, our own selfish ambition. Man, I'm showing up to work because I want to look good in other people's eyes. I'm, I'm going to do this job, and I'm going to do it well because I want other people to kind of see me as better than everyone else in my workplace. So work can become selfish, and work can become supreme. Sometimes we can love our work so much that it becomes an idol in our life, a a false god. Our emotions, our thoughts, even our identity hang on how our work goes. Our sense of self-worth is, is, is measured by the bottom line and what our boss thinks about us. Here's a diagnostic. Um, when someone asks you how your week has been, do you just kind of automatically, most naturally kind of give an answer based on how your work week is going? That could be, not always, okay, because we spend a lot of time at work and it's naturally on our minds, but that could be a signal that we are elevating work to the status of what we are ultimately worshiping. You see, we were, we were made, listen to this principle, we were made to work, not for work. Because we were made for work, why? Because we were made for God. As Augustine says, uh, our hearts are restless because God has made us for himself and they're restless until they find their rest in him, in God, because we were made in his image for him. 
So th- those are the ways that, that work can become frustrating. But, but you say, well, Tanner, you know, like, thanks a lot for sharing the good news with us, all right? Like, I can't wait to go to work this week, all right, and experience all these frustrations. Um, is there, like, any fulfillment there? Can, can, I, can I get in on kind of some fulfillment as I connect my work to the working God? Absolutely. And how do we do that? We work in step with God's purposes and God's heart. That's how, that's how I believe we can, we can experience fulfillment this week. As we start this new year, as we move through January, February, March, April, May, you know what I'm saying? It's like we can experience some fulfillment because we connect what we do with the purposes of God and the heart of God. We see this in the passage. Again, look back at verse 17. What does Jesus say? I hope you kind of get this in your mind uh, as we keep going over and over it. It says, my father is working until now, and I too, I also am working. You see, Jesus was in lockstep with God the Father. God the Son was, was on the same mission. He had the same purposes as God the Father. And so, Tanner, what are the purposes of God? Like, how can I kind of, I can't connect myself to the purposes of God if I don't know what the purposes of God are. Well, well, well the purposes of God can be really just seen so clearly in the good news of Jesus Christ, in the gospel. You say, how do you say that? Well, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sake. He rose again on the third day. Why? So that he might bring people back into a right relationship with God, restore our relationship with God, as well as restore God's good design for our world. So the, the, the Old Testament concept for this is the Hebrew word shalom that, that is translated peace, okay? But it's not just peace as in like the absence of conflict. It is peace in the sense of harmony and flourishing and experiencing life as God intended in the very beginning. Jesus came to restore shalom. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God. Jesus came to restore everything that is good that we long to experience in life. And so in the very maybe uh, faintest ways and smallest ways, yet the, in the, in the, in also very significant ways, we can reflect this quest for shalom by engaging and the kind of purpose and mission that Jesus engaged in when he was here. And he said, well, just break this down for me a little bit. Help me out because I'm about to go to work tomorrow. I'm about to hang out with some friends today. And I kind of like to be in on what Jesus was in on. Well, let me just put it very simply, okay? Number one, you can just ask yourself, are you meeting physical needs around you? Like, we just saw it right there, right? And there's a man lying, uh, lame, 38 years. Jesus heals him. He said, like, Tanner, you know, like, that's kind of a tall task for me. I mean, like, like what's that got to do with me here? Um, well, well, Jesus, not only, not only did he heal people, um, Jesus served people. Jesus fed people. Jesus offered cups of cold water to people. Um, he, he bandaged up people's wounds when they were hurting. Jesus calmed storms to protect people. Jesus reversed death. He came to restore God's good order in creation. He met physical needs, but he also met spiritual needs. 
if, if we go back to verse 14, um, what does he say? He says, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. See, Jesus is not only concerned with his physical health, Jesus is concerned with all of his health, his spiritual health, holistically. He wants this man to experience everything that God has for him. And so we not only hold out a cup of cold water, we not only serve those around us and meet their physical needs, but we also want to point them to the God who made them and to show them that how that they can love like he loves and think how he thinks and desire what he desires and, and do what he does. Jesus came to set things right. This was his purpose. This was his mission. And, and as we align our work with his work, we're going to align it with, with, with his purposes and mission as well. But, but not only that, uh, we, we see this in verse 14 again. It's, it's, it's also aligning our work with God's heart. Verse 14 is, is, is short, but it is packed with significance. Look at what he says. See you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. There is an important progression of what Jesus says here. He wants the man to see what God has done for him. See, you're well. I mean, surely Jesus said that with a smile on his face as he looked at this man who had been lying there for 38 years, and he's, he's well, he's walking, he's elated that this physical restoration has come to his body. And he says, look, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, align your entire life with the purposes of me in the kingdom of God through faith in me. We know this is how it happens as we continue to read the gospel of John so that we can not only experience a good physical life, but we can experience an abundant spiritual life, both now and forever. Jesus holds out forgiveness to this man. He holds out a better life that is full of flourishing from the inside out. But it is, it is grace-motivated action. I mean, listen, uh, we're, we're starting the new year, and we're going to engage in work, and we're going to give God everything that we have. I hope this is, this is the goal, right? Um, but, but if we do this in our own strength, man, I got this. I don't, I don't need anybody's help. We're setting ourselves up for a certain setback. We're setting ourselves up for failure. Why is that? Because we cannot do anything. We cannot do anything except that which God gives us the strength to do. So when he says, see that you are well, sin no more, the, the, the imperative of how he should live is built on the indicative what has just happened to him. You get that? So, so because of what God has done, because of who God is, now we live motivated by his love and transforming power and grace in our life. And now we're fueled, we're fueled with the power to live our lives for him. You know, I was thinking about my own devotion to Christ and, and what I want it to look like uh, this year. And, and then I started to think about for our church. And, and a couple of words that came to mind, surely they won't be the only two words, but, but, but I hope that people could look at my life, look at our lives as a collective people known as Redemption Channel, and say, you know what, man, their devotion is unquestioned, and it is unignorable. 
Now, the first word you can find in the dictionary, I don't think you can find the second word, but, but I borrowed it from another church, right, that I kind of keep up with, all right? Unquestioned and unignorable. In other words, when people look at our lives, that there's no room for doubt as to whether or not we are devoted to God, whether we are living our lives for him. I mean, certainly we may slip up. We may not live perfectly. In fact, none of us will, including yours truly, all right? But, but, but clearly we are consistently giving ourselves to God day by day by day. Our devotion is unquestioned, but also because of it being unquestioned, it is also unignorable. In other words, people have to wrestle with why we would live how we would live. They have to try to come up with explanations for things that seem unexplainable. How could they forgive that person when no one else would forgive them? How would they give up their time when everyone else is being selfish with their time? This is what Jesus does. He turns our lives upside down. And and as we live like he lived with his purpose and mission in his heart, our lives become unignorable to those around us. And so as we embark on this this new year, this new uh, journey, I want to encourage us all to consider some fresh steps that we can take in our journey with God in 2016. I don't care if you call them goals. I don't care if you call them resolutions. Call them whatever you want, all right? But the new year is a new opportunity for us to be devoted to God together. And so I want to give you just four simple encouragements as we, as we wrap up our time in God's word. Um, and they're summarized by this, this phrase, okay? Strive daily together for him. All right? Strive daily together for him. Let me unpack that for us, okay? To, to strive. We want to set some God-given, realistic, yet audacious goals. Uh, I think this will probably require, if you haven't already done this, all right, it's probably going to require you kind of stepping back out of the the busyness of your life and what's happening around you to find some undistracted time where you can just kind of get away and consider, how do I want God to work in my life this year? In what ways do I want God to grow me to be more like Christ? What do I need to give up? How do I need God to strengthen me to persevere in the things that I'm already doing uh, fairly well? What area do you just, like, and Tanner, I just need a fresh start. I mean, I'm kind of blown in this area. I haven't done well in this area. Listen, one of the things I love about God is that God is not only the God of the second chance, right? Like God not only gives us second chance, right? God gives us like 70th chances, right? And like 70th times, 70th chances. Do the math. It's a lot, all right? Like he just gives us endless grace to continue persevering and, and moving forward. And so in what ways do you want to see God at work in your life this year. Let's prayerfully consider and set some God-given realistic and yet this tension of realism with audacity and faith to, to, to move forward in what God has for us. Number two, um, we want to recognize that 10,000 daily decisions determine the outcome of our, not only goals, but also of our lives. 
You see, it's the everyday moments with the everyday challenges and opportunities that will, that will determine whether or not we see the things happen that we want to see happen in our lives. It's the daily decisions, the monotonous kind of, hey, my, my, my alarm's going off. Do I hit the snooze button or do I get my lazy self up out of bed? All right, I'm just speaking to myself, not to you, okay, because I wouldn't want to do that to you. All right, I'm sure you never have a problem with that. Um, but it's like that decision times, you know, 365, um, that's going to determine what your year looks like. It's, it's, it's saying no to, to the internet for, you know, the endless hours that, that you kind of pull it up, like, you know, on your phone and, 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 you know, like the third episode on Netflix that you, that program that you love so much, right? Like, these aren't bad things, but if we want to see God do great things in our life, we need to, we need to make some, some sacrifices to, to really devote our attention to what we want to see God do. And if it's not, it's going to happen, Right? We're just going to like write them down and they're like, here we go. Like, man, what an awesome year it was. You know, like it's going to take a lot of grind and daily decisions to follow after Christ as he's leading us. But, but then number, number three, okay, we don't want to do this solo. We want to do this in community. See, I mean, I can, I can set some great goals, but if I don't share those with somebody and, and, and have some added encouragement toward what I want to see God do, if I don't have some additional kind of prayer um, and support, um, then there is a good chance that I will not realize the goals that I set for myself. You see, community motivates, community encourages, community bears the burden. It absorbs the sorrows and the setback as well as increases the joy and celebration when we meet our goals. So we want to strive. We want to do this daily, these 10,000 decisions. We want to do it together, and we want to do it all what? For him. Come on now. Y'all awake, right? It's two, man, it's like you got some rest. You're on vacation and stuff. Been off work, hopefully a little bit. All right. For him. It's all for him. So when, when we uh, maybe decide, you know, I really want to spend more time in, in the Bible this year to, to know God's heart and to, to hear his, his desires for my life. You know, I need to do that with an eye toward him. Did you, did you know that you can even do like spiritual things in a, in a kind of selfish way? Like in a way that's disconnected. Isn't, isn't that kind of ironic that we can kind of do it, not really looking toward worshiping and, and pointing to the glory of God? When we say no to that next dessert, I mean, just, you know, not that I would ever need to do that, but, you know, like, when we say no to that next, we do it with an eye toward him. When we hit our knees in prayer, again, we do it for him. When we serve others, we do it for him. When we spend quality time with loved ones like we plan to do, we do it for him. It's all for him. And as we saw a few weeks ago, when we do it for him, it not only increases glory to him, but it also increases our own so I came across a little poem uh, this past week by a, a 16th century uh, pastor and, and, and scholar. His name was George Herbert, and he wrote this poem called The Elixir. And, and you know me, I normally don't uh, read poems uh, in my sermons, but this one is so good. I just want you to listen carefully to the words as I read them for us. This, this was penned in the late uh, 1500s, uh, and this is what he says. Teach me, my God and King, in all things to see, 
and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. Not rudely as a beast to run into action, but still to make thee prepossessed and give it his perfection. A man that looks on glass, on it may stay his eye, or if he pleases through it pass, and then the heaven espy. All may of thee partake, nothing can be so mean, which with his tincture for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold, for that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. G. Herbert is saying something like this, right? When you push a broom and you do what you do for the sake of the glory of God, even that simple act of cleaning a floor, it is infused with meaning, value, and grace. Duty all of a sudden becomes delight, and that which was drudgery before becomes divine. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we will do this year if we do it with an eye toward him that is not transformed into something that is mysteriously strange to everyone around us, except for those who know the divine touch of God through Jesus Christ. And so I want to get in on that kind of action. I want my, my husbanding and my fathering and my pastoring and my playing and my sipping and anything that I'm doing, I want it to be all for him. And that is going to bring him great glory, and that is going to bring me great joy. Let's get in on that together this new year. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your boundless word. God, you are an amazing God. You are a great God. You are a holy God. You are great in all your works, and you are always at work. So God, even as we open your word today, even as we sing these songs, even as we pray these prayers, God, we know that you are at work. And God, we absolutely need your work in us this new year. God, we don't have it all together. We can't do the things that we want to do apart from you strengthening us for the tasks that you set before us. So God, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for everyone who couldn't make it, whether they be traveling or sick or, or, or hindered by some other you know, kind of providential situation. God, I, I pray that, that we as individuals, but we as a collective people known as Redemption Hill, that we would embark on this journey for the new year and be engaged in work to your glory. May we find everything divine and a delight because of who you are and what you've done for us in the life, the cross, and the empty tomb of Jesus in whom we have life. Father, we love you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.